so wonderful to be with you here live in person in Blackburn and also for those uh, that are joining us online. What a beautiful day it is today uh, over our summer holidays and during this summer break here at New Hope we've been exploring each week um, our mission, thinking about the mission that Jesus has given us to make and to multiply life-giving relationships. And each week, um, we've been teaching around one of those relationship circles, one of those domains in which we're called to bring life, the life that we find in Jesus. In the very first week, Alan preached a wonderful sermon about connecting into the source of it all, to our individual relationship with Jesus. And then the next week, Lance took us to that place of the most intimate relationships that we experience in those immediately around us, in small groups of friends and fellow believers, in the group of our immediate circle of our family. And then last week, Danny took us to the vocational space, to the way in which every one of us is called to go to every place uh, to do meaningful work in the name of God. And this morning we come to a circle that we've called the local commons. What is this thing called the local commons? Well, the local commons is, put simply, this thing that we share here together in Blackburn North, like the preschool and the medical centre, like New Hope Community Care, like the soccer club and the prayer ministry, like the ministries we do during the week with families like kids' church and young adults uh, uh, and um, and gathering together in groups and worshipping, all these things and many more that I haven't named, they make up the local commons. Well, why is the local commons important? Why on earth does it matter? Well, the significance of the local commons is that it is a visible, a visible expression of the life of Jesus Christ. The local commons is the place where with flesh and with blood, with bricks and with mortar we express Jesus Christ's life in specific and tangible ways. I want to begin this morning by returning to the beginning, to that moment recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 2 that some have called the birth of the church. As it gathers 50 days after the Passover to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. If you're a first century Jew, Pentecost was an agricultural festival. It was that time when farmers would collect the first sheaf of wheat and they would bring it to the temple as a way to express their gratitude to God um, and also as a way to pray that the rest of the harvest would go well. The Pentecost wasn't just about these first fruits, these first sheaves of wheat. Pentecost in the first century was connected to the very first Pentecost, hundreds of years before recorded in the book of Exodus. Fifty days after the Passover, in Egypt, when the avenging angels slew the firstborn of the Egyptians, but passed over the houses of the Israelites, and then as they themselves passed through the waters that God held back into freedom, fifty days after that emancipation, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and he comes down with the law. And here in Acts, Jesus goes up into heaven in the ascension, and then he comes down again, not with the written law carved on stone tablets, but with the dynamic energy of the law designed to be written on the hearts 
of people through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what these two Pentecosts have in common. They're moments when God gives to his redeemed people a way of life. He gives them a way of life through which they might now carry out his purposes in the world. This story in Acts, with its amazing scene of the tongues of fire falling from heaven, isn't a story about a bunch of individuals who just kind of happen to be in the right place at the right time, and we're given some supernatural gifts like that superhero movie franchise that we're all aware of. It's a story about how the purpose and the power of the Spirit constitutes the church as the body of Christ on earth. And what does the body look like? What do the people who have gathered as the body of Christ do? Well, in Acts 2, 43 to 46, we get this description. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. This picture of the believers of Jesus gathered together in one place and having things in common is the fundamental picture of our understanding of the church. This is a picture of the local commons and what a beautiful and compelling picture it is. A group of people brought together by their shared experience of the amazing grace of God help and encourage one another. They share food and they practice hospitality They praise God and they worship together and they do that in a particular place that makes them visible to the people around them. Say like on the corner of two busy roads with a shopping centre opposite and a petrol station and a McDonald's. These people, they, they see how this group of people in this particular place relate to one another, how they relate to people outside in the community They begin to hear that if you're in need of help, you should go to this group of people because they'll offer it to you. They start to see that this group of people are really interested, engaged in the big questions of life, and if you want to talk about those questions, you can go and be amongst them, and they'll listen and talk it through with you. They notice that these people keep talking about this God who actually seems to be incredibly real to them and walks with them step by step, through their lives. And they notice that these people in this place, despite everything that's going on around them, they seem to have hope. And they really, really genuinely care. And they like what they see. And they're attracted to what they see these people in this particular place do. And so their number gets added to as people come and want to know why are they like this? What is the source of this hope that they know? And they come and they be saved. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. 
It's not a complex idea to understand, is it? But I think it's a radical thing to experience. I also think it's a radical thing to commit to because it requires that you check your rugged individualism at the door, that you recognise that the whole really is greater than the sum of its parts, that we really are, as human beings, better off together. And it requires the kind of love that transcends warm feelings and invites us to reach into our own resources of time and money that we've worked hard for and freely offer them to those around us. It requires that we be okay with not being in control, that we're okay when our ideas don't get taken off up, when things don't happen like we want them, when our vision isn't at the centre. And it requires you to understand that long before you rocked up to this place, there are a bunch of people here already who sacrificially gave to make everything that you now enjoy possible. So you've been entrusted. You've been entrusted with an amazing legacy built on the service and sacrifice of other people and that your job is to steward it well and then to pass it on to the ones that will come behind you. All who believed were together and they shared everything in common. You've probably noticed that the cultural waters that we're swimming in in this moment, being together and having things in common, is kind of hard to pull off. When it comes to being together, the reality is that we're increasingly alone. Health professionals are sounding the alarm bells about the health impacts of the growing epidemic of loneliness. It turns out that loneliness can kill you. An influential meta-analysis of 150 separate studies showed that loneliness can increase your risk of death, more than poor diet, more than lack of exercise, more than alcohol consumption, more, uh, it's even more harmful than smoking. And what really surprised me about the results of a recent Australia Talks national survey is that the image that I have in my mind about the most lonely was really completely and utterly wrong. The image we have that it's mostly older people who experience loneliness, but actually the survey showed that it's young Australians, specifically between the ages of 18 and 24, are far more likely to experience loneliness. As a people who live in the inner city, as people who are living on incomes of less than $600 a week, and ironically, as our One Nation voters. Maya Angelou, the American poet, finishes one of her beautiful poems with this line, the autopsy read, dead of acute peoplelessness. In a world where people are dying due to peoplelessness, the commons is a place literally for people to enter into life-giving relationships. All who believed they were together and they held all things in common. After we're welcomed into the warm embrace of togetherness, the reality is it actually doesn't take very long before we face the challenge of holding all things in common. I'm not talking about our concern that after, you know, that holding all things in common means we somehow have to grow out our hair and sell everything we own and live in a commune and eat lentils for the rest of our life. 
or that holding things in common means that we have to surrender to some kind of weird group think where we all think the same things. Holding all things in common is about holding on to the reason that brought us together in the first place, Jesus. We can only hold things in common to the extent to which we hold on to Jesus and are willing to walk in his way of laying down our lives. In Galatians, Paul says, you know that old life that you used to lead, the one that was mostly about you? Well, it's over. It's dead. It's been buried because you've been crucified with Christ. And now it's Christ who lives in you. And I love that verse, and I understand what Paul is saying, but my experience is that sometimes my old self rises up out of the grave to take back control. From time to time in the church I pastored in in Albert Park, someone would call and want to speak to the pastor. Often they were doing their research about the church, and I get that. They wanted to get an understanding of who we are and what we did, what kind of people we were before they risked turning up in person on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And I can understand that. Turning up at uh, a church you know nothing about is a really big step. You might walk in and find three octogenarians gathered around, um, gathered around an organ. You might find a 20-something pastor in skinny jeans jumping up and down on the stage. You might even find a middle-aged woman in an awfully loud skirt with trainers on. I mean, who knows what you might find when you turn up to a church you don't know. But as I talked with people on the telephone, and if I was patient enough, and if I really listened, after we got past the surface questions of how many people go to your church and when do you meet and do you have this or that ministry, they'd get to the question that they really wanted to ask me. I'd say that over the years I noticed that there were really two questions. The first is, am I okay? And the second was, are you okay? The people who used to ask me, am I okay, they're the ones that have been rejected before. They've had some kind of experience in church or with Christian people that's left them feeling judged or looked down on or not good enough. And so they ask, if I come, will I be welcome? If I come, will I fit in? Is it okay for people like me to come? The other group of people wanted to know, well, are you okay? These are the people who had often left churches because they didn't live up to their standards of right action or right belief. The church or its leaderships or its pastors sometimes had disappointed them or fallen short in some way, and they didn't want ever to make the same mistake again, so they were doing their due diligence. Over the phone, they conducted a kind of mini-interview with me. They'd say, Pastor, what do Baptists believe? And Pastor, what's your theological position on insert latest hot topic? And do you believe in the inerrancy of scripture and what Bible do you read from on a Sunday morning? And after listening to each of these people on the phone, my heart would just feel so incredibly heavy. 
Heavy because, of course, I feel the pain of those people who have experienced church as a place of shame and a place of hurt. And heavy because I felt the pain of those people who are unlikely to ever find a church that will meet their expectations. See, underneath both of those questions, I think, is a common assumption. And that is that the church is a kind of utopia, a place where people are faultless and they faultlessly live out their fully realised and complete understanding of God perfectly. I notice too sometimes that I suffer from this kind of utopian thinking. Sometimes the church and people don't live up to my expectations and I get disappointed. And sometimes I realise I am the source of disappointment for others. Sometimes we aren't all together. We splinter into religious factions and sometimes we are divided and we don't have things in common. And not only does that hurt our witness with one another, but it hurts our witness in the world. You see, church is messy. It's easy for us in church to get caught up, I think, in some kind of nostalgia. We say, well, gee, gosh, the church was better back in earlier days. If only we could go back to what we were, back to what the church used to be in the Bible, back to what we see in the first century in places like Acts chapter 2, then everything would be great. But when exactly was the church perfectly loving? When exactly was the church's understanding of God perfect? You see, we get all nostalgic, but we forget that the witness of Paul's letter to the first century churches in places like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Galatia, they paint a picture of churches doing extraordinary and amazing things through the power of God, but also churches who are wrestling with difficulties over morality and theology and divisions. They paint a picture of a church that is both glorious and messy. And the same glories and the same messiness of the church in Paul's time, of course, is still found in our time today. You see, holding things in common isn't about just holding the perfect parts of us in common. Holding things in common has to include holding our imperfections, holding our brokenness. The church is gathered around a perfect saviour, but in our humanness, we gather in various degrees of broken love and broken fellowship and broken leadership and broken holiness and broken justice and broken peace. And this morning, the thing I want to tell you is that this is just how Jesus intended it to be. See, Jesus said, I've not come for the healthy to give the healthy a doctor because they're in no need of a doctor. I've come for the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. The ones who are gathered around Jesus aren't the perfect or the healthy ones. We're simply the ones who know that we're unwell and in need of health and wholeness. 
And part of Jesus' prescription for how we get well is that he takes us and he enfolds us as members of his body in the world. He gives us to one another, drawing us together under his headship with one common cause, to continue his ministry of reconciliation and restoration in the world. And when we allow Jesus to enfold us into the body of Christ, when we submit ourselves to his headship, when we give our lives over to pursuing the purpose of the church, expressed and made visible in the local commons, my goodness, that's, that's where we find our salvation too. You see, isn't it crazy that the person sitting two aisles over from you that you kind of don't really like, or that ministry leader you think isn't doing a very good job, or the member of your small group that simply talks too much, or the pastor whose sermons are long and boring, that God has given these people specifically to you so that you might enter more fully into the kingdom of God. So that you would have a context and a place, a set of relationships in which to pursue faith and hope and to grow in love. You see, I can't think of a better way to learn how to love than joining with another group of broken, imperfect people on a mission to save the world. The church is the perfect laboratory of love that God gives us to imperfect people and challenges us to choose and to practice the way of love over and over again until it becomes who we are. All who believed they were together and they had all things in common. It's not a very complex idea to understand, but it's a radical thing to experience. And it's a radical thing to commit your life to. How committed are you to being part of the local commons here? I ask you that question not because I want to guilt you anything, but because I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to miss out this year on the ways in which God seeks to grow greater faith and more hope and deeper love in your life. This week as I was thinking about sharing with you the, this morning, there were two groups of people that came to mind. First is those of you who are beginning to make a connection at New Hope. Maybe you've been watching online last year and now you're moving towards coming and being part of this community in person. And the other group are people who have been at this church for a very long time. Ones who perhaps at another time, at another stage of their life, were deeply involved uh, in the church's life, in something in the local commons, but for various reasons, for various, you know, were bruised, got hurt, and therefore backed away. I really don't want you to withdraw yourself from the opportunity that exists for all of us to be enfolded into the body of Christ for the sake of our own salvation. That this is the context and the way and the place in which we learn to love, to love God, to love one another, and to love ourselves. 
I'm so grateful that at New Hope there are so many different ways that you can enter more deeply, that you can take a step towards these life-giving relationships here as part of this commons. You could turn up and volunteer at the canteen at the soccer club on a Saturday. You could join the Wednesday night prayer group. That's your kind of thing. You could come and gather in small groups and open up the Bible together. You could gather the food that are from Food Bank Victoria that we hand out each week as part of New Hope Community Care. There are so many different ways that you can come and be connected into life-giving relationships here. Maybe you've been at New Hope for five minutes. Maybe you've been at New Hope for five years. But if this is a moment in your life when God is inviting you to take a step towards him, I pray that you would recognise that part of that is about choosing to enfold yourself in the imperfect community gathered around a perfect saviour so that you might know life and life to the full. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this glorious vision of what the church can be, what we all long the church to be in the world. And we thank you that you enable us through the gifting and the power of your spirit to move in that direction and to align our lives and ourselves and our hearts and our minds and our resources, all of our life, Lord, with, with your restorative plan for the whole world. So God, I just pray that in the silence of this moment as we listen to your spirit in each of our lives, that you would encourage and convict and invite and challenge each one of us to not let go of this opportunity that we have to be enfolded into your life, to be a part of your people here at New Hope Baptist Church. Grow us, Lord, so that we might be a people that, that other people want to know what is the source of the hope that we have? How is it that we're so caring and so loving, Lord? We pray that we might become a shining light, a city on a hill in this place for your glory. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.